Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Good morning. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have, you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but I will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Praise be to God. All right. So the house next door to us just went for sale, went up for sale. And so we're really excited to get some new neighbors sometime in the coming, I don't know, two months. Um, Houses are going really quickly now, so we imagine we'll have new neighbors pretty fast. Anybody here ever lived in a house that was for sale? You lived in a house while you were trying to sell it? Right. Okay. A couple of you. I have not, but I hear that it is a big pain. I hear that it is no fun at all, right? (laughs) Don't scuff the walls. Keep everything clean. You could have a showing at any moment, so everything's got to stay in order and clean and nice and ready for a showing at any moment, right? It needs to look like those photos online when your buyers get there to look at the place. Living in a house that is prepared to sell and that is listed for sale, I I understand is no fun, but it keeps you diligent, right? Right now, I, I hate clutter. Let's just be real. I absolutely hate clutter, but I have a really big problem. I'm also terrible at organizing. Like I'm, I'm so unorganized, and I hate clutter, which means that most of my time at home is just spent in anxiety over the clutter that I can't clean up. Right? So my wife does a really great job of managing our house because clearly I am not that guy. I love to have a clean home. And so I love it when people are coming over. I mean, it's great that I'm an extrovert anyway. I love it when we're going to have people around because it forces us to clean the house and it forces me to pick up that clutter that has been causing me anxiety anyway. And so I have to clean it up. So part of me feels like maybe I should just always be living like my house is on the market, right? I should just always be living like at any given moment, someone could show up. At any given moment, my realtor could call and say, hey, we've got a showing in two hours. Can you vacate and make sure the place is clean? I think it might help me to be a little bit cleaner and a little bit more organized, right? Yeah, it's an inconvenience, but, you know, maybe the advantages of living in a clean home would be better. In, in a lot of ways, living for Christ, living for Jesus, is like living in a house that's on the market. In a lot of ways, living our lives for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus, living our lives for our Lord, our Master, our Savior, Jesus, should be a lot like living in a house that's on the market. We ought to be ready for Jesus any moment. 
We ought to be ready for him to interrupt our lives at any given moment. Now, I'm not talking about keeping yourself perfectly and morally clean and everything, right? I'm not talking about keeping your life sinless. That's, that's not going to be possible. What I'm talking about is being totally, consciously, cognitively aware at every given moment that Jesus could come back or that Jesus could interrupt my day with some directive, some instruction, with some new person who he's calling me to care for, to love on, with some new, some new task that he's giving me. I need to be constantly ready for Jesus to interrupt my life. And no, it is not convenient. It is not convenient to live for Christ. It is not convenient to live as one who is dedicated and who is given over to Jesus. Not convenient at all. But it's so much better than not living for him. It is so much better than not being aware of him, not having my eyes and my mind turned to him always. I think what happened at this church in Sardis that Terry just read about, this church that Jesus is writing to, I think they lost sight of the imminence of Jesus, of the nearness of Jesus. I think they lost sight of the fact that Jesus is there and and ready to interrupt our lives at any given moment, and we ought to live as though he is ever present with us as though he is always with us, as though he could interrupt us at any given time, either by returning or calling us to some inconvenient thing that we weren't ready for. I think that's what happened in Sardis. Jesus starts this letter to the church in Sardis, right to the angel of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now what's going on here? why, Why is it important that Jesus pulls out this image? You know, through each of these letters in these first three chapters of Revelation, we've mentioned that Jesus always points back to something from the opening vision, right? In, in the first chapter, John had a vision of Jesus standing before him, and Jesus described himself in certain ways. And at the beginning of each of these letters in Revelation, Jesus describes himself according to that vision, right? He pulls out some element of that vision, and he, he appeals to it. And it connects to the thing that he's going to have to say to the church. So in this one, Jesus is reminding the church in Sardis, I'm the one who has the seven spirits. That is, I am God. I am sovereign. I am in control. I am the master of the universe. I am the cosmic king. I am the one who is over all things. And I hold the seven stars. Now remember, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. They're also just the churches, right? Jesus holds the churches in his hand. He's reminding this church in Sardis, these Christians in Sardis, look, I am the master of everything. I am God on high, and I'm the one who holds the churches. Never forget it, Sardinians, Sardesians, however you say it, right? Never forget it, people of Sardis. I am the one who holds the churches, I hold your star. I hold your church. And and let this be a reminder to you and me that Jesus is the one who holds us. The God of the universe, the King of all things, the Savior, the Master, the Lord, the Deliverer, the King, He's the one who holds our church in His hand. We live and we die according to the word of our Master Jesus and no one else. That's what He's reminding this church in Sardis. I hold you, not Rome, 
not the government of Sardis, not the temples and the pagan cults around you, no one else. Jesus is letting the church know, I hold you. You are mine. You don't belong to anybody or anything else. You don't need to worry about pleasing anyone or anything other than me because I hold you. And church, let's remember that it is Jesus who holds us and no one else. Nobody else owns you and me. Nobody else owns this church. We are in the hands of the God of the universe, of our great King, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and no one else. And we need concern ourselves with pleasing no one else on this earth than Jesus. And if we're pleasing Him, we're pleasing the right people. If we're pleasing Him, then that's what matters. So Jesus is reminding them, I hold you. I am the master. I am the king. Concern yourself with me, not with what the world thinks of you, not with what those other folks think of you. And that's going to become really important here in just a second when he goes on to to lay out his criticism of Sardis. Jesus is harder on Sardis than any other church in these letters except for the one in Laodicea, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. But here in Sardis, Jesus is saying, look, you, you, guys, you guys have this great reputation. You have a reputation for being alive, but really, you're dead. I mean, how, how hard is that word? How painful is that for Jesus to come to you? Hey, we got to remember that these words come, and they're not coming from John. They're not coming from Paul. They're not coming from the apostles. They're not coming from any human person. They're not coming from any human authority. This is not legalism. This is not some person standing up and saying, you're just not measuring up. This is Jesus himself, Savior of the church. That's why Jesus starts with the image that he starts with, so that then he can say, You have a reputation for being great and alive, but really, you're dead. You're of no use. You're no good to me. I mean, how hard is that coming from Jesus? How painful is that coming from Jesus? You know, a lot of us, particularly those of us in ministry, we have um, a problem with imposter syndrome, right? Because I know if you really knew me, Like, if you knew me to my core, if you saw me when I was in an argument with my kids, if you saw me at my worst or when I'm most angry or frustrated, you would not let me pass through this church. You would dare not listen to a word I have to say on a Sunday. You would go, that hypocrite. I don't don't want And so a lot of us who are in, particularly in Christian ministry and Christian leadership, feel imposter syndrome. We feel like, man, I am just, I'm not good enough for this. And the truth is, we're not. And it's owning that that, that allows us to, to be here. right? It's owning the fact that I'm not good enough that makes me not a hypocrite. <laughs> but a, a lot of Christians, I mean, if you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, if you've been walking with God for any amount of time, then, then I'm sure you've dealt with imposter syndrome yourself. So, like, God, I, I say I'm a Christian. Like, I say I'm a follower of yours. I, I go to church. I, I do this stuff. But really, what am I doing? I mean, really, am I, am I doing everything you want of me, God? Am I really living for you? Am I, am I really giving everything to you? And, and pastorally, a lot of times I meet with people who are like that, and I'm like, it's okay. God has grace for you. Yes, you are. Tell me about your life. 
And if there are areas of sin that need to be addressed, let's address those. But, but in reality, you, you, just having that worry, having that concern is enough to tell me that you're in good standing with your Lord. Right? That you're concerned about being good before Him, that you're concerned about pleasing Him, that you're concerned about loving Him, lets me know you're in a good spot. But a lot of us deal with imposter syndrome. And here in Sardis, I don't think they had that concern. I don't think they had the worry about imposter syndrome. And it, that's the thing that's concerning. They thought they were alive. They thought they were doing great. They had all the programs. They had all the best music, all the best lights. They had all the people coming in. They had a party every Sunday. They, they had all the markers that the world would look at and go, yeah, you're a healthy thriving community. But Jesus looks at him and says, you're dead. Now, what, what causes this death? Why does he say they're dead? Well, the problem here is that we don't really, really have any indication of what it is that they're doing or not doing. All that we have is Jesus saying, your works are not complete before my God. Now, that word for complete is translated perfect in other uh, translations. It's, it's the word telos. It's the end. It's the goal. It's completeness. It's wholeness. What Jesus is saying, the things that you're doing, they're, they're not really up to standard. They're not really up to stuff. They're, they're not really about me. They're not really about the God. They're imperfect. They're falling short. The things that you're doing aren't really about what they're supposed to be about. And so, yeah, you do all the stuff, but it's not right. This was God's complaint against his children Israel over and over and over and over and over in the Old Testament. You keep doing the stuff. You look like you're doing all right. You're making the sacrifices. The temple continues. You're going to your, your services. You're, you're dealing with the priests. But your hearts aren't in it. In fact, your hearts are over there with Baal or with one of these other pagan gods because you're trying to appease the pagan gods of the nations while also trying to appease me through your worship and your service. And so while we don't have particulars about what hap what's happening in Sardis, the complaint is close enough to what God says to Israel over and over and over again that I think we can pull that out. I think we can look and we can say, the problem here in Sardis probably is they're going through the motions of worshiping Yahweh. They're going through the motions of worshiping Jesus. They're, they're doing the stuff that would mark them out as alive, but somehow, in some way, they are compromising with the other pagan religions of the world. They're compromising with the society around them, and they're trying to hold both in their hands. They're trying to say, yeah, we can do this stuff, and we can worship Jesus. Yeah, we can, we can make these compromises to be able to fit into our society while also having our hearts set on Jesus. As long as we continue worshiping in this way, we look alive and we can also do these other things that will make sure that we're not persecuted like those other churches in our region. This is a lot like the letter to Ephesus, remember? Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus. And, and he said, basically, look, you're alive, but you're dying because you're compromising with the world. Here in Sardis, they're just a little further down the road. They've made a few more compromises because they don't want to have to suffer the persecution that Smyrna is suffering. They don't want to have to suffer the persecution that Pergamon is suffering, that these other churches are suffering. And so they think they found a way around that. Well, we won't really be in trouble with the world. We won't really be in trouble with the Jewish community or the Zeus community or the emperor worship community if we just make these compromises while we also worship Jesus. 
Does that describe you and me today? And does that, how, how, how often does that describe my own heart? How often does it describe our church or our churches or churches around us? They say, yeah, we, we can continue to worship Jesus. And we can also say, this is all right and that's okay. We can worship Jesus and we can also go along with this politician or that plan. Or we can worship Jesus and we can also back these policies that hurt our neighbors. Because this is an ideology and I want to be good with these people. As long as they don't cause me trouble. That's what's happening in Sardis. And unfortunately, that's what happens with too many of our churches. We're afraid to speak the unadulterated truth of the gospel of Jesus. We're afraid of the exclusivity of the message, of saying that it is only followers of Jesus who are citizens of God's kingdom. We're afraid to speak the truth of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. We're afraid to sing songs with the word blood in them. I'll be straight with you. In choosing the confessions of faith, all too often, I avoid confessions that have to do with judgment or blood. Like the confession we confess today, will God allow our idolatry and sin to go unpunished? We've never confessed that before. Because I didn't choose it. I don't choose it too often. Because I don't want to put people off. And yet it is a reality of the gospel of Jesus. It is a truth of Scripture. And it is a big part of the cross of Christ where Jesus took our sin and our shame and crucified it in his body. We avoid certain truths of the gospel of Jesus, of the good news of Jesus. We avoid the bad news that leads to the good news because we don't want to put people off. And we compromise our gospel. Or within our own church, we say, well, it's okay that you're doing that. It's okay that you live this way. It's okay that we're, we're doing this. It's, we, kind of, we allow certain things within our community, within our church, in the name of tolerance and of love and of acceptance, that really we should be standing up and saying, you know what? God has told us that's not the way to live. Now, this doesn't mean we need to turn into judgmental legalists. That's exactly the opposite of who we should be. But we cannot proclaim the forgiveness of Christ. We cannot proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus that frees us from sin if we pretend like we don't have sin. We cannot proclaim the good news of the cross if we cannot allow for what led Jesus to the cross. Our sin and our brokenness and our shame and our idolatry. We cannot proclaim the cross of Jesus if we don't also proclaim the forgiveness that is only bought through the blood of Christ. And so avoiding, avoiding imagery that offends people causes us to, to take up this milquetoast gospel that doesn't actually affect change, that doesn't actually help people because it ignores the very condition that the gospel is meant to correct. And I think that's what happens in Sardis here. They take their eyes off of Jesus and they try to accommodate the culture and the society around them and not to stand out and not to be persecuted and not to endure the suffering that these other churches in Revelation have endured. They compromise the gospel of Jesus. They take their eyes off of him. And I think one particular aspect of Jesus that they've taken their eyes off is his imminent return. This is why Jesus says multiple times, he says in verse 2, Be alert 
and strengthen what remains. Be alert for what? Remember that at the beginning of the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, Jesus had said through John, or to John, that this is the revelation of the things to come soon. And the revelation largely focuses on the coming of Jesus, on the return of Jesus. When Jesus says to this church, be alert, he wants them to be aware of his return. He wants them to be aware of his coming. Now, the early church so often had this problem where they imagined that Jesus was coming like right now. I've mentioned it before, but in the, his letter to the church in Thessalonica, the first and second Thessalonians, the apostle Paul's writing to this church, and they have this problem in this church where they thought Jesus was coming so very soon that when people started dying in their church before Jesus returned, they got worried about the state of their souls. Like, they were concerned. If someone died before Jesus returned, would they get to go to heaven? Would they be resurrected with him? I don't know. I don't know. Like, what's, what's going to happen to these people who died? I, and it really began to build anxiety within them. And so Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, be easy, it's okay. Like, they've gone on, they've fallen asleep, but don't worry. When Jesus returns, they're going to be the first to be resurrected. In fact, they're going to enjoy his presence sooner than you will if they've died before Jesus returns. So, so don't worry about this. But that was the general mentality of the early church. Now, in the 90s or so, so that's back in the like 40s and 50s AD that Paul is writing to Thessalonica when, when these people have this imagination that Jesus is coming back like right now. Now we're in the 90s. So we're like two generations away from Jesus. Now that we're in the 90s, people are getting a little more complacent, a little more chill. They're a little more like, okay, well, Jesus hadn't come back yet, so maybe he will, maybe he won't, I don't know. They lost a sense of the imminence of Jesus' return. They lost a sense of the urgency of Jesus' return. And I think that's what causes them to become complacent. That's what causes them to compromise. They've forgotten that Jesus can come back at any moment. They've forgotten the urgency of his return. And so they've turned their eyes away from Jesus. Church, I am not a big end times person. You know that, right? I, I, I hate most of the end times books that are out there and the popular level stuff and all the stuff that's trying to discern the signs of the times and tell you that this is going to happen and that's going to happen in, in great detail. That's not how scripture was written. That's not what Revelation means. But in, in rejecting the errors of end times omania, in rejecting the area, errors of the hysteria around end times stuff and prophecy and whatnot, we dare not reject the imminency of Jesus' return. We dare not reject the urgency of Jesus' return and that we are called to be watchful and be alert and keep our heads up for the return of Jesus, that it could truly happen any day. But what happens is we all too often we swing between these two ends. We either swing to the like, I just don't really care about Jesus' return and I'm just not going to think about it, or I'm going to go all in on all of the end times prophecy stuff and all of the detailed stuff and all the, the popular books out there and everything, and I'm just going to go crazy about this. When in reality, we ought to be right here in the middle, remembering that Jesus' return is imminent, and we are to be ready at any given moment. We are to keep our eyes focused on him, and it's when we lose focus on Jesus that we die as a church. We lose sight of our purpose, which is to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus so that when he comes back, he finds a people ready and waiting for him. 
That's our purpose as a church, and it can only stay our purpose if we keep our eyes locked on Jesus. But too often we're like Peter walking on water. Remember this story? Right? Peter and the disciples, they're out on this boat, and there comes a big storm. But Jesus was back on shore. He was taking some time to pray and to be alone and to recharge his batteries. Well, then Jesus finishes up his prayer. He finishes his connecting time with God. And he starts, he's like, okay, I'm going to go join the guys on the boat. So he walks out on the water because, you know, Jesus. So he just kind of, he starts walking out on the water. The disciples see him from afar in this storm. And they say, Jesus, come to us. But they think it's a ghost, right? They're afraid at first. They're like, oh, no, I don't know who this is. And finally, they, they, they begin to think maybe it's Jesus. And so Peter yells out, hey, if it's you, Jesus, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus is like, okay, come. So Peter climbs out of the boat, and he begins to walk toward Jesus on the water. And you can imagine his legs are like, you know, jelly. And he's trying to walk on this stormy sea. But he's doing it because his eyes are on Jesus. And the moment that he looks away, the moment that he begins to look out at the waves and look at the circumstances of his life, the moment he begins to look at the darkness and the thunder and the lightning and the crashing waves around him, what happens? Peter begins to sink. And that's the church in Sardis. And for a lot of us, that's, that's too often our church. We keep our eyes on Jesus, and as long as we're on Jesus, we can, have, we can have wobbly legs, we can have weak knees, we can have all the fear and anxiety in our heart, but as long as our eyes are on Jesus, we can keep walking forward regardless of what's going on. The state of my heart, the state of my fear, the state of my anxiety, the state of, of where I am right now really doesn't matter as long as I keep my eyes on Jesus. But the moment that I look away, and I allow all of those other circumstances and things to take control of my heart, to take control of my life, I begin to sink. And the same is true of the church. That's what's true of the church in Sardis. They've lost sight of Jesus, and they've focused instead on their circumstances and on preserving their circumstances and preserving their place in the world and making sure that they're not persecuted and they're not pushed down like these other churches, and they've forgotten that the circumstances of your life don't matter if your eyes are on Jesus. They've let him go. They've turned their eyes away. But there's good news here. Though the church has turned its eyes away, Though the church has lost sight of Jesus as a whole, and they've begun to compromise, and they're not holding their people accountable, and they're not, they're not preaching the gospel in a way that, that would cause them persecution. Though they're not being true to Christ, there are some there who Jesus says have not defiled their clothes. They have a few among them. They have a few among the church who are really trying to call the church back to its purpose trying to call the church back to Jesus, to keep their eyes on him. And, and you can imagine, if the bulk of the church is all for compromise, right? if the bulk of the church has, has let, taken their eyes off of Jesus, then these few are probably the annoying squeaky wheels among them. All too often, you know, it's the squeaky wheels we ignore. It's the squeaky wheels we want to kick out from us because you're, you're, you're fighting against the, the group. Why, why, why would you do that? I mean, really, it's just like, what, three or four or five people in this crowd who, who think we should be going this other way? Like, if, if 95% of us think we ought to be going this way, and we're the church after all, like, that's the way we should be going. What, what, 
these few don't really matter. And yet here, Jesus is reminding the church, look, it's the squeaky wheels you need to be listening to. Is those annoying people among you who keep telling you not to compromise with the world? It's those annoying people among you who keep telling you you need to be preaching the gospel and living the gospel, and you need to be seeking the love of your neighbor. You need to be living into the commands of Jesus. You need to be following him and not lose sight of him. Hey, guys, Jesus is coming back. It's those people, Jesus says, that you need to be listening to because they haven't defiled their garments. They haven't compromised. They're still about me, and they are radically about me. I once had this friend... I say a friend. We had, well, he was an acquaintance. Uh, I met with him a couple of times. The most Jesus-centered person I have ever known in my entire life, and he made me uncomfortable. Me. I've given my entire life to ministry. I have lived in the church, grown up in the church, served the church, gone to seminary, all that jazz. And Robbie made me uncomfortable because everything about Robbie's life was Jesus. Everything. You couldn't have a conversation without him telling you what God was telling him to do and, and how God was teaching him to love. And, and you, you couldn't have a conversation with more than a few words with Robbie without hearing about Jesus. Not in a beat you over the head, not in a judgmental way, but just in a, I, he had such an intimate relationship with Jesus that he couldn't help but talk about him. He talked about Jesus the way that I talk about my kids. He talked about Jesus the way that I talk about my wife. Right? He talked about Jesus the way that I talk about cameras. Right? He loved Jesus and was so intent on Jesus that it even made me, a lifelong minister, uncomfortable. And I left those relations, I left that, those times of meeting thinking, man, I want to be like Robbie when I grow up. I want to be so in love with Jesus that you can't know me. I want to be so in love with Jesus. I want him to, to identify me so much that that prayer of St. Patrick at the beginning of our service is true of me. That when others speak of me, they have to speak of Jesus. That when others talk about me, they cannot talk about me without talking about Jesus. I want Jesus to shine so clearly through me that when other people think my name, they think Jesus. I want people to leave times that they've spent with me thinking they just spent some time with Jesus. I want people to feel so loved, so cared for in my presence. I want them to know that my life is defined by Christ and who he is so that they can't think of me without thinking of him. I want the same to be true of our church. Okay, Christ is in our name. So yes, technically people have to think Christ when they think Christ community. But are they thinking of Jesus? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. When our neighbors think of Christ community church, do they think of Jesus? Do they see his character reflected in us? Have we kept our eyes so on Jesus that even though the steps we take might be a little wobbly and might be a little fearful, we're focused on him. And so everybody around us knows those people are about Jesus. Those people are about Jesus and the love that he comes to bring and the wholeness that only he can give and the shalom that can be ours only through him. Is that what people think of us? Because I don't give a rip if our reputation is of being alive, if that means they've got good programs and nice people and great music and whatever, right? I don't give a rip if people, we have a good reputation based around those things. I care that we have a reputation for being focused on Jesus and for bringing his vision to our community. 
That's what we need to be about corporately and individually. That's where our attention has to be. And we have this promise from Jesus, that the one who conquers, that is the one who's focused on me, the one who's not lost sight, the one who hasn't compromised and defiled their garments, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Here's the great news about this. Your citizenship in Jesus' kingdom, my citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, my citizenship with my Lord Jesus is dependent only on surrendering to him. That's all. Our citizenship in heaven, our citizenship in Jesus' kingdom is secured only by settling our minds and our hearts on him. Not by the rituals, not by how cool we are, not by how skinny our jeans are, but focusing on Jesus. And to the one who gives their life to Christ, the one who surrenders to Jesus, who allows him to be the center of all that they are, to them he will give white garments, which is purity, cleanliness, righteousness, his righteousness that we can't earn or build up within ourselves. And to those people he will write their names in the register of the citizens of his kingdom. Our names are on his citizen roll. If only we surrender ourselves to him and give ourselves up to his service. But we have to allow ourselves to be led by Jesus. We have to allow ourselves to be, to be interrupted by Jesus. We have to allow our lives to be inconvenienced by Jesus. To live in that place of imminence and urgency, remembering he can come back at any moment. Short of that, Jesus calls us to things that are going to be inconvenient. Jesus is going to call us to things that are going to have to cause us to have to, to drop what we're doing and instead love someone who's inconvenient to us. Jesus will call us to reach across the aisle with someone who we vehemently disagree with and love them and care for them. He's going to call us to reach out in love to that person who is going to suck us bone dry with all of their requests and all of their neediness and to be able to give to those people and to seek their wholeness, to seek their shalom, to seek their, their fullness. Jesus is going to call us to inconveniently love all kind of people that we would normally ignore. Jesus is going to inconveniently call us to hold to his standard of living rather than what everyone else thinks is right. Jesus is going to call us to all kinds of inconvenience for his sake. But he promises us that he will make us citizens of his kingdom and he will give us his righteousness. And he promises us, as the one who holds the seven spirits, as the very God of heaven, as the very creator of the universe, his very Holy Spirit to empower us to live the inconvenient way of Jesus. So church, I hope that individually and as a church, we are a people who are ready to be inconvenienced for our Lord. Who are ready to walk in solidarity with Jesus to stand upon his principles, to stand upon his gospel and allow him to interrupt our lives, speak the truth of Christ everywhere we go, 
I hope that we're a people who desperately want that prayer of St. Patrick to be true for us. Christ in me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ all around me, Christ on the mouths of every person who speaks of me. I want my life to be about Jesus, and I hope you do too. So keep Jesus before you. Keep Jesus before you always. Keep the cross and the resurrection and the ongoing reign of King Jesus in front of you every day. Read the scripture. Read the words of Jesus. Study the life of Jesus. Pray. Pray as though Jesus is returning right now. Pray as though he is present with you right here because he is. Pray with urgency and with eminence as though Jesus is right next to you. And seek Jesus in community. Seek him in the character and the face of the people around you. Seek Christ in me and Christ in you. Keep Jesus in front of you and surround yourself with people who are trying to do the same thing. That's why we come and we gather here. Not just to come and to to sit in a pew and to get our own fill and to be fed and then to go, but to come into fellowship with like-minded people who are seeking Christ-likeness too so that we can keep Jesus in front of us all the time. Keep Jesus in front of you. If we can do that, we will be a church not only alive, but effective for the glory of God and the shalom of our community. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for calling us your own. Thank you for making us yours through the cross and the resurrection. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts to come to this table and to partake of your body and of your blood, as we partake of this great sacrament of communion, God, I pray that we would be aware in our mind and in our spirit and our soul of the sacredness of what we do, of taking your sacrifice, your life, your death, your resurrection, your reign into our bodies. God, that we would do this not ritualistically, but holistically, in a way that says, yes, Lord, I surrender to you. I want my body to be your body. I want my blood to be your blood. I want my life to be your life. I want everything to be surrendered to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this great honor to come to this table as a community, to keep you in front of us always, and to focus on your leadership in our lives, to focus on your lordship over us, to focus on your sacrifice and your resurrection. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.